Hi everyone, Dr. Edith here. I want to start today with a bit of a shocking statistic that we will, of course, put into context throughout the show. Here it goes. Autism spectrum diagnoses have tripled since the year 2000. I'm getting that from a study of kids in New York and New Jersey published earlier this year in the Journal of Pediatrics. But it's not just happening here. The trend is also true nationally. The rates of autism diagnosis have been undeniably on the rise. And if you follow the news, you know the drill. New stats come out from the CDC periodically and they make a huge media splash. A new CDC report finding a growing number of children are being diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder in the United States. More children than ever are being diagnosed with autism. After the media splash, though, we kind of stopped talking about it. Well, not here. Today, we revisit this topic for answers. From Columbia University Children's Health in New York, you are listening to the Stuff That Matters for Kids Health podcast. I am Dr. Edith Bracho Sanchez. I am a pediatrician and a new mama, and I invite you to sit back, relax, and join me in talking to some of the most brilliant minds of our time as I ask them, what are the things that really matter today for our kids to turn out okay? For today's chat, I recruited Dr. Gabby Paskin. She is a colleague and a friend who also just so happens to be an autism specialist. I asked her what in the world is going on, why is this happening, and I even squeezed in some personal questions like, am I crazy for throwing out all the plastic in my home when I got pregnant, and a couple others. Really quick, please remember the content on this podcast is provided for general information only and should not be relied on as a substitute for any professional medical advice or treatment. The views shared on this show solely reflect the expertise and experience of the host and our guests. Anyway, here's our chat. Enjoy. Welcome, Gabby. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, Gabby, before we get started, I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about what a developmental pediatrician is and what you do. What's your job, Gabby? Break it down for us. So, I would say my job is to diagnose kids who have developmental differences, but I would tell any child that my job is to play with kids. So that's a really fun part of what I do. So developmental behavioral pediatrics is a subspecialty of general pediatrics. So I was a pediatric resident and went on to do extra training in developmental behavioral pediatrics where I learn how to take care and diagnose kids who have developmental differences. So I see a lot of kids with autism or ADHD or learning disabilities or global developmental delay or intellectual disability and help families navigate complex issues with school or behavioral problems at home and help kids get access to services. Yeah, and so much of what you do is advocating for families, right? Helping them come to a diagnosis, helping us general pediatricians find a diagnosis, and then advocating for families, right? Yes, so a lot of what we do is giving an original or initial diagnoses of some disability, and then helping families understand what we can do to help them. So helping them access service. So usually that is either through telling parents how to navigate the complex services through the school district or through early intervention and kind of letting them know what to expect so they know how best to help their children. Yeah, it's hard. And we're so grateful to have you here at Columbia. So Gabby, going back to today's topic, which is autism spectrum disorder, I want you to take us really to the beginning. How did we get here? Because again, the statistic that the rates have more than tripled since the year 2000 is concerning to anyone listening and paying attention to this. And 
I just really want to understand how did we get here? What's happening? So it's a very confusing question to answer, but I think most of us in the field think that over time, the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder has really changed or broadened, which means that a lot more kids now fit under this umbrella of autism spectrum disorders than previously did. And so a lot of kids who now meet criteria for an autism spectrum disorder maybe might not have met criteria previously under different versions of the diagnosis. So to remember the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder, the criteria that you need to have a diagnosis are written very broadly to catch a lot of different kids, right? Kids who have more are more impacted and more severe symptoms to kids who have very mild symptoms, all falling under this same umbrella. So likely there are kids who may not previously have met criteria under a different kind of diagnostic framework, I guess we would say, who now could meet criteria for autism spectrum disorder because the criteria are now broader. And there are many more people aware that autism spectrum disorder exists because of the news and all of us screening in clinic regularly for autism. Because of how aware everyone is of autism, families are often aware of the symptoms that they might be looking for and are coming to ask pediatricians if their child might have autism. And so there are just more families aware and therefore like coming to pediatricians with concerns. And pediatricians in practice are also doing regular screening now for autism spectrum disorder. So we're kind of catching, I guess we'd say, more kids than we previously did. And so all of this is adding to just like a bigger pool of kids that are meeting criteria for an autism spectrum disorder. Got it. So before the year 2000, kids that perhaps were left out of this umbrella are now actually being diagnosed and being within the umbrella because the umbrella got bigger, so to speak. The kids who do qualify for a diagnosis are now many more because the diagnostic criteria changed. Yes, and there are some kids also that maybe previously there you might not have been allowed to carry multiple diagnoses at the same time. And so now the rules have kind of changed and you're now allowed to have autism and potentially another diagnosis at the same time. And so maybe a kid who previously had a diagnosis of intellectual disability may also now carry a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. And so they also are now under this umbrella as well. Mm -hmm. I see. And Gabby, I want to ask you about the causes a little bit, because I think when people hear that the rates have tripled, I think it's also completely understandable to ask ourselves, did something happen that more kids are now being diagnosed with autism? You've explained to us that it's really that we diagnose more because we've broadened the criteria. We've made it easier to diagnose. But just for a moment, tell us exactly what the quote-unquote deficit, although I don't like to use the word deficit, is an autism spectrum and, and what it is that we're really talking about. Because I find that even you know families who are concerned that their kids have autism because of something they have read or because someone has brought it up to them, they don't always have a good understanding of what we're talking about when we say autism and what it means for their child. So autism spectrum disorder is a a wide umbrella that is describing basically two sets of symptoms, difficulties in what we call social communication skills and restricted and repetitive behaviors or patterns of interest. And so you need to meet criteria, meaning there are certain 
types of symptoms you have to have in each one of these areas to be diagnosed with autism. So when we're evaluating kids, we're thinking about what the criteria are and we're looking at each kid and saying, do they have enough in each category to fall under this umbrella of autism spectrum disorder? But it's really those specific areas, right? It doesn't mean, you know, your child is less smart or less intelligent or this or that. No, it's we're looking in those specific areas, as you said. So, yeah. So autism, again, is about social communication and restricted and repetitive behaviors. It does not talk at all about how much language you use. It doesn't talk at all about what your cognitive skills are. Those are diagnoses that often are associated with autism, but they do not have to be. So about 30% of kids who will have autism will end up with intellectual disability. But not all kids will. Many children will have average cognitive skills. So I think that's great, Gabby. And I think going back to our understanding of what's really at the root of this increase in in diagnosis of autism, we really have to ask, although I know it's a loaded question and a difficult one to answer, but I really have to ask you, what causes autism and what do we know about what causes autism? And I know that we're learning as we speak and as we sit here recording. So we're always learning, and there's lots of research being done right now at this moment on the causes of autism. And the answer is we don't totally know. What we know is that autism is likely a complex interaction between genes and the environment that causes kids' brains to develop in a particular way that leads to what looks like the symptoms of autism, right? But we don't always understand why one kid's brain is developing in one way and one kid's brain is not. So we know that genetics can play a part in autism, and we know that autism can run in families. So often kids with autism may be offered genetic testing to try to understand if there's some genetic reason that they might have a diagnosis. And then there's likely some environmental changes or exposure that may make it more likely for a child to be diagnosed with autism versus not. And we don't know what those are. And that may be contributing to an increase in the diagnosis of autism at this time, but we don't have any answers to what those things might be, the real cause, quote unquote. Yeah. And just to acknowledge that that's really hard. It's really hard. It's hard for parents of kids who have been diagnosed with autism, who are perhaps looking for an explanation. And it's hard for new parents like myself who are hoping to prevent autism. I have to tell you, Gabby, when I got pregnant with my now one-and-a-half-year-old, I went crazy. I went a little bit crazy. I looked at all the chemicals that I keep in my home, and I started looking for cleaning products that didn't have as many chemicals. And I started throwing out all the plastic and transitioning to stainless steel and glass. I just was looking to see, and I started buying more things organic. And I started, I mean, I I drove myself a little bit crazy. And I think in an effort and in hoping to prevent autism, I may not be alone. I think a lot of us new moms do this. And I just wonder if you can speak a little bit about what we know about some of these common chemicals and potential sources in the environment. So I would say I don't think you're alone. And to remember that parenting is hard. Yeah. Knowing you're having a baby is hard and having a baby is hard. And our job as parents is obviously to try our best to give our kid all the things that we want for them, right? And have all these ideas about what their life will be like. And we want to try to help our kids get 
what they want and what we envision for them. So you're definitely not alone. I also use metal plates in my house as well for my kids. <laughs> um, but so the only thing that I can say with like real certainty, the only thing we know that doesn't cause autism, yeah. because it is the only thing that has been very well researched many, many times, is we know that vaccines don't cause autism, mm-hmm. right? Because of the concerns that were raised about that, many, many studies have been done showing that there's no association between vaccine and autism. Otherwise, it's very difficult to pinpoint specific things that may be an environmental cause of autism for a variety of reasons, one of which is like these are not studies that are easy to do in isolation, right? We don't have kids who all of a sudden have some environmental exposure to plastic or to anything and then are kind of not getting any services. It's not done in a vacuum. And so it's very hard to kind of figure out what etiology or an environmental cause might be. Right. It's not like you can put a child in a little box and just test little bits of exposures to different things at a time to see what leads to autism. Real life does not work that way. And studies are hard to conduct when real life is messy. And really genetics and the brain is kind of quote unquote messy too. And nothing is as clear as that, that you have an exposure to something and that leads to autism, let's say. Likely what happens is that maybe a child was has something in their genes that maybe predisposed them to some developmental disability and then something happened or maybe this is how they were always supposed to be that made it more likely for that gene to be turned on or off that made it more likely for them to have autism or developmental delay. Yeah. And it's it's tricky, but it's important to understand the nuances and to highlight the nuances. And I think because we don't know 100% what causes autism, anywhere near 100%, I should say, there's so much room for speculation. And not just speculation from bad actors, but I also think from parents who are looking for an answer. And I think it's only natural that if your child is diagnosed with any condition, you're going to say, what did I do? in the past few months that may have led to this condition. And I think that's where things like vaccines come into play, things like perhaps metal exposures, perhaps diet. And I have to tell you, I have a number of families who have come to me and have said, my child was diagnosed with autism. I want them tested for all these metals. I want them tested to see if they need a gluten-free diet. How do you work and how do you talk to families that come to you? Because I'm sure um, many of your families also come looking for answers. What do you say to those families that are looking for answers and that are looking to those specific sources, the metals, the diet? What do you say to those families? So I say probably something very similar to what you say, which is that at this point, we have no evidence to support exposures to metals or plastic or gluten is an underlying cause for autism or a developmental delay, let's say. And so we have no reason to expect that their child has elevated levels, right? We do lead screening annually for little kids because that is something that we know is concerning for development and kids should be tested at the ages that their pediatricians recommend. But we have no reason to assume that there's been any other exposures to any other heavy metals unless something known and unusual has happened in the family's life, right? So there's no reason to think that that has happened to a level that would be of developmental concern. As far as a gluten-free diet or a casein-free diet, 
Again, there's no evidence that we have that being on any specific diet is needed or helpful for a child who has autism spectrum disorder unless they have a specific medical condition that requires a specific diagnosis. I will say anecdotally, I definitely have families who will report that they feel like being on a gluten-free diet has been helpful to their child's behavior. And I I believe them. I don't think that's false. Yeah. And so I think this is about, you know, weighing the risks and benefits. And if that is help for that child and they generally are eating a well-rounded diet in other ways, that's okay. If ever a time to be gluten-free, this seems like a good time to be. There are lots of options. If a family came specifically to ask me, like, does my child need to be on a particular diet? I would again say no, unless they have any symptoms of something that we're concerned about. If families want to try it, I think it is fine to try as long as they are willing at the end maybe to go back. Like if you're going to be on a gluten-free diet, maybe at some point you should go back to gluten to see if there was a change. Because again, These kids usually are also getting services, so it's very hard to kind of say this is the one thing that made a difference. So I think it's worthwhile. You can trial off gluten. You can trial back on, see if it's made a difference. And then just to caution families who have kids who are very picky, which we know many children with autism are, that if you decide to have a particular diet, it might not be easy for your child to eat everything because... Maybe they're picky and they're not so flexible about the foods that they eat. So just thinking whether that is reasonable for you or your child and about the foods that they eat. That's great. And I love how you frame it in the sense that for some families, it does make a difference and it is a positive change, but always being willing to to try to figure out what really helped and to work with your pediatrician, with your developmental pediatrician, if you have one, if you've been referred to one, to try to figure out what works for your family and what's reasonable for your family to maintain, because some of these diets are really hard to maintain. And Gabby, now that I've taking us down this diet and exposures rabbit hole, which I didn't necessarily mean to do, but I think it's an important one because I think a lot of families have questions about this. I do want to go back a little bit to this rise in diagnosis and and what it means. And I don't want to say that an increase in diagnosis of autism is necessarily a positive thing, but there is some benefit to actually diagnosing children early and to making sure that they have services in place. So tell us a little bit about what's been the positive aspects of actually catching more children under the umbrella that you described earlier. So by giving kids the label of an autism spectrum disorder, we give them access to services, which we know are helpful, as we believe that early intervention services or services early in life make a difference in kids who have developmental differences, and we want to support them as much as possible. So having a delay or labeling a diagnosis is part of the process of getting them access. We can reliably diagnose autism as young as 14 to 16 months. I want to say that that does not mean that all children can be diagnosed that young. Again, the criteria are written very broadly, and some kids will not be diagnosed until they're a bit older because the symptoms have not become as apparent. Gabby, and that's that's great, really, to know that we can now diagnose it that early. Now, for how early we are diagnosing and how much more awareness there is, it also seems like there's still so much stigma around autism spectrum. And, you know, you use the word label, right? Like when we give a child this label. And I want to be careful because that's still a big deal for a lot of families to receive this label. And there's still a lot of stigma around receiving the label, even though 
kids who have been formally diagnosed qualify for all the services that you mentioned. So why do you think there's still so much stigma? I think it's complicated. Obviously, I think some of it stems from not wanting, just from families obviously not wanting a diagnosis or a label for their child, not meaning they don't want to get their children help, but like no one wants their child to be diagnosed. Most people don't want their child to be diagnosed with autism or any disability. And so it's very hard to hear that about your child and makes everyone appropriately really sad. And a lot of families would prefer access to service without needing to have the label. But sadly, we don't live in that world. And that is not how we can get access to services. And so it usually doesn't work that way, that we usually need to give the diagnosis to open the door to get access to services. And I think for many diagnoses, behavioral or developmental or even psychiatric, there continues to be a large stigma in the population because these are not diagnoses that people are comfortable with. And people don't know, you know, especially if your child is diagnosed very young, what this will mean for their life and what this will look like as kids get older. And that makes it really hard for families to understand kind of how to picture what their child's life will be like. And stigma also comes with fear, in my experience. And I also wanted to ask you, Gabby, and we're almost at the end of our show, as someone who spends time with families and with children who have a diagnosis of autism spectrum, what is one thing that these families, that these kids, that the people who love them and surround them don't hear enough? So a few things. I say this often to families after giving them a diagnosis is to remember that their kids are the same kids that they walked in with the morning that we gave the diagnosis, just that we're trying to describe a criteria, like a constellation of symptoms, right? And that this label or this diagnosis is not the defining part of anyone's life, right? But again, it is powerful and it gives us access and that is what we want to use it for. And then something I think that is really important for all families to remember is that they didn't do anything that made this happen, right? This is just how it is, right? And that no parent did anything wrong or had fell off the bed when they were pregnant or and had to take some medicine while they were pregnant. And that is the reason their child had autism, right? So no one did anything, quote unquote, wrong. So important for families to hear that piece. And lastly, Gabby, where can parents go who want to learn more about autism spectrum? There are many, many resources, but I think the easiest one for families to navigate is Autism Speaks, which is a a website made for families of children who have autism spectrum disorder. And it has a lot of great information. They have a, a resource list, but a lot of toolkits for families, including a like a first diagnosis toolkit that families can read about how to navigate services and get connected and what autism is, as well as a variety of different toolkits about different like behaviors that might be an issue or things that they're trying to work on at home. It really is such a wonderful website. I love it. I've spent a lot of time on it and I really recommend it to a lot of my families and to remember also that we as general pediatricians, as developmental pediatricians are here to support you and to advocate for you. Dr. Gabby Paskin, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And thank you at home for joining me on the Stuff That Matters for Kids Health podcast. 
If you liked our show, make sure to tune back in next week. Leave us a rating and review and help us spread the word about our show. That's right. We'd love it if you could tell a parent friend IRL in real life or just drop a link on your group chat. We'll take that too. You can also find us and more information on Kids Health on our social media channels at Kids at Columbia. I'm Dr. Edith Bracho Sanchez in New York, and I will see you next time. <laughs>